0: This morning we are in uh, Acts chapter ten. We're actually going to read through the entire chapter and then the first eighteen verses of Acts chapter eleven. So I'm not going to ask you to stand because that's 66 verses. I counted, um, so you don't have to stand for this. But we'll be reading all of that. And the reason we're doing that is because the reason I'm doing that is uh, this. This is one large section uh, that kind of covers the same event. It's a lot of repetition, some development of the story, but it seemed best to cover the whole thing in one swoop so that's what we're going to do uh, this morning. So Acts chapter 10, uh, you recall we've we've left Peter Peter or we haven't left Peter, but uh, last week we saw Peter continuing to venture out from Jerusalem into Uh, Territories, territories that are kind of mixed Jewish and Gentile, and he's proclaiming the resurrection and demonstrating the power of the resurrection and healing Aeneas uh, and raising Dorcas from the dead as Jesus begins to, uh, as Jesus continues to push back against the curse of sin through the proclamation of the good news of his resurrection. We pick up from that scene now as uh, things begin to move even further into. Uh, gentile territory as peter begins to proclaim the gospel uh, now outside of uh, kind of those early jewish believers but now bringing the gospel for the first time uh, to a gentile group outside of jerusalem so that's that's where we are it's a major transition in the book of acts which is why luke spends 66 verses telling us about it Uh, so give your attention if you will to god's word And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who was called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. The voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him, and on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. He said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, "'Four days ago, about this hour, "'I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, "'and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing "'and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard "'and your alms have been remembered before God. "'Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, "'who is called Peter. "'He is lodging in the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. "'So I sent for you at once, "'and you've been kind enough to come.' Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. But to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word "'Looking at it closely, I observed animals "'and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, "'and I heard a voice saying to me, "'Pete, rise, Peter, kill and eat.' "'But I said, "'By no means, Lord, "'for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth.' "'But the voice answered a second time from heaven, "'What God has made clean, do not call common. "'This happened three times, "'and, was all, and all was drawn up again into heaven. "'And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, "'sent to me from Caesarea.' And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who was called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, you send forth your word and you promise that it will not return unto you void, but will accomplish the very purpose for which you send it. So, Lord, we pray that you would accomplish in us your purposes by your word and by your Holy Spirit. Give us understanding and insight into your word. Help us to receive it with faith and love, to lay it up in our hearts and to practice it in our lives. Change us, we pray. We pray that in all things we would see Jesus, for we ask it in his name. Amen. In 1792, uh, uh, an Englishman named William Carey published a book that uh, turned the English-speaking church upside down, uh, or more rightly, right side up. Uh, The title of that book, classic 18th century title of books, An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians for the Conversion of the Heathens. I don't know that that would get much play on the bestseller list nowadays, but that was how they titled books back then. It's a book in which uh, Carey argues in favor of the church doing foreign missions. Now, we might think why would you have to argue in a book that the church should do foreign missions? It seems like uh, just what we ought to do. But in Carey's day, the church, uh, particularly the church in England, uh, had come to believe that the Great Commission had only been given to the apostles and was not really kind of part of their concern uh, as as the church, unless it was somehow connected with colonialism. And so they, the church, said, "We don't have any obligation." with converting the heathens, as they were called at that point. Carey had spent years pushing back against this uh, attitude, this view in the church. And on one occasion, he, he had presented his argument, his case, to a group of ministers in uh, England. And one famously stood up and said to him, Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. In other words, this is not our concern. Now, in that situation, you had a combination, kind of a perfect storm of bad theology, what's often called hyper-Calvinism, coupled with uh, what we might call partiality, or a prejudicial, prejudicial view, in this case of those who were not British, those who were not English-speaking, a prejudicial view of all foreign nations. And these two things came together in the church and created this atmosphere in which the church kind of said, it's not our job to go and evangelize the nations, to go to people who are different from us and to proclaim Christ. If God wants to do it, he'll do it, and he doesn't need us. It was bad theology coupled with prejudice. Here he persisted. And in his persistence, because of his persistence and God's grace in using him, uh, he is now known as the father of modern missions. His story is worth knowing. I I commend it to you. But it's a story that has a precedent. It's a story that is uh, not the first time that type of thing has happened in the church, And here in Acts 10 and 11, we see a similar struggle, a similar, as well as a similar revolution unfolding through Peter's gospel witness to Gentiles and the Lord's wonderfully bringing salvation to the Gentiles as Gentiles, bringing them into the church as they were without requiring them to become converts to Judaism first. Peter and the church in this uh, episode here learned some of the fuller implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Namely, what it meant that God showed no partiality and that old distinctions and divisions that had been given had been now done away with in Christ. That The dividing line... As, as the Jews had seen it up until that point, the dividing line for them among people had been between Jew on one side and non-Jews or Gentiles on the other. There was reason for that. But in this, they learned that the dividing line among people is no longer Jew or Gentile, but rather those who have faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, and those who do not, regardless of national, social status, ethnicity, whatever else you want to add to that. It was a big lesson, one that Luke spends 66 verses to drive home and then repeats again later in Acts chapter 15. So let's walk through kind of the main big points of this lengthy story as we've read it. First thing we need to know is that part of what had happened uh, among the Jews at this point is that a special status given to them by God had kind of morphed and changed into a presumed partiality towards them as Jewish, as Israelites, as God's special people. And you can kind of see this in Peter. He he is struggling to understand how he as a Jew should relate to Gentiles. I don't think Peter has any qualms about sharing the good news of Christ's resurrection with people who weren't Jewish. I don't think Peter's struggling with that, but he is certainly struggling with how do I maintain this special status as a Jew, Israelite, part of God's chosen people while interacting with non-Jews, with Gentiles who need to hear the gospel. And in Peter's day, this kind of tension in the Old Testament had uh, kind of morphed into this view of partiality. In the Old Covenant, God's people were separated. They were distinct from all the other nations. God chose Israel. He chose Jacob and Jacob's descendants and made promises to them as a people. And, and separated them out from the rest of the nations and said, you are my people. You are my special people. And he made covenants with them that he did not make with the rest of the nations. And along with that, he gave them uh, what we call the, we often call it the holiness code. So this is, uh, if you're reading through the Bible and you're trying to go all the way through and you're starting in Genesis and you get through Genesis, it's exciting, it's an amazing story, and you get through Exodus and it's an amazing story and then you get to, what's the third book of the Bible? Leviticus and thing the, the, the wheels get stuck in the mud a little bit. It's a little harder to get through. This is where all of those uh, holiness codes are all of these uh, laws and regulations and, and distinctions between things that are clean, things that are unclean, things that make you unclean, and what you have to do to be clean. Uh, and we call these ceremonial laws, there's civil laws. There's the moral law, which still continues, summarizing the Ten Commandments. But then there are all these ceremonial laws in the Old Testament: how you plant your crops, what kinds of fabrics you can wear, what to do if you've got like you know a little infection on your arm, and, and how all of these laws and regulations given to the people of God, the Israelites, to set them apart as holy unto the Lord. And and the main point of all those laws was for God to say. I am a holy God and I am drawing near to you and you are to draw near to me. But you've got this problem of sin and I'm going to highlight it with all of these laws <laughs> to show you that I am holy. And if you're going to draw near to me, you must come on the terms that I set and specifically you must come through sacrifice, through the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins and that distinction between God's holiness And our sin is kind of magnified in all of these laws. But the point of all those laws was for God to say, you are my people. But the point of God saying to them, you are my people, was not so that it would just terminate with them. All the way throughout the Old Testament, there's a consistent theme, a consistent message. God says to his people, I choose you to be mine so that you will be a blessing to the nations. And in the Old Covenant, the way that worked was, if you wanted to be part of God's people, guess what you had to do? You had to come into Israel. You've got examples of this throughout the Old Testament. Um, Ruth, a Moabite, she's brought into Israel. She's brought into God's people. Rahab, uh, the the prostitute in Jericho, she's brought into God's people. She's made... Part of God's people by belonging then to the nation of Israel. The Gibeonites in the book of Joshua, they're brought in, a foreign nation. They become, through covenant, Israelites. They're brought into Israel in that sense, into the people of God. Part of what had happened is that this view, God's special people, meant to be a blessing to the nations, had turned inward. And so the second half of that had often been chopped off. And they were God's special people to be set apart. And so by the time you get to the first century, uh, there's very little, um, particularly in dominantly Jewish areas like Jerusalem, there's very little social interaction between Jews and Gentiles, particularly in the issue of sitting down at a table, having a meal, showing hospitality to one another. There's flexibility as it goes. But by and large, there was this separation. What had been given as a special status had turned into this presumed partiality. What do we mean by that when we talk about partiality? We mean favoritism, right? Showing favor to this group of people because they are this group of people and not another. Um, we, we have you know, laws against this in the workplace, right? Uh, you have to guard against nepotism of uh, showing favor to somebody because they're a family member, uh, and giving them the job and somebody else is more qualified to do it, that, that type of thing. God made distinctions, chose his people, but that had turned into this presumption that God had chosen them because of something they had done, perhaps because they had earned it. And yet all throughout the Old Testament, God says, I, I chose you not because you were the best of nations, not because you were more numerous than all the peoples, but I chose you because I chose to set my love upon you. It was the initiation of God's grace upon them, but it had turned into something different. You see this in Jesus' interaction many times with the Pharisees in the Gospels. The Pharisees are uber concerned about all these external laws. You know, wash the cup, wash the hands, all these extra rituals to, to show that they were clean and belong to God's people. And Jesus looks at them and says, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You're all clean on the outside, but you're full of death, dead men's bones on the inside. And this was the problem that was uh, at work, even in the early church, and one that had to be solved, reconciled through divine initiative. I don't know if you noticed that as we're reading through this, how much emphasis is placed on God's revealing things to Peter, to Cornelius, and then through Peter to the church in Jerusalem. Uh, notice Cornelius and how this idea of no partiality begins to be re- um, established and how these distinctions begin to be removed from Peter's mind in the case of Cornelius. Cornelius. Did you catch how Cornelius is described in this account? He is pictured for us as one who has been prepared by God graciously to receive this message of good news. He's a Gentile. He's a full-on Gentile. He's a Roman centurion, kind of what you might call a non-commissioned officer in the Roman army. But he's got some authority. He's got some status. And yet we're told that he's a devout man that he is uh, in some ways a proselyte to the Jewish faith, but he has not become Jewish. He's not adopted the uh, the whole thing, if you will. But he's a devout man. He fears God along with his whole household. He's led his family to believe in the promises of the God of Israel. He even prays at the set times of prayer, namely here, the ninth hour of the day about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He is portrayed for us as one who is loving the God of the Bible and who has believed the promises that this God has made, and yet he doesn't have the whole picture. He doesn't have all the information that he needs. So an angel comes and says, hey, there's a guy named Simon who's also called Peter. He's staying at a house of another guy named Simon who's a tanner to distinguish between the two. Send for him. So he takes his servants and another, another devout soldier. You get the impression that Cornelius is quite the evangelist. <laughs> He's got a soldier under his charge who is also believing in these same promises. He sends him down to Joppa to find Peter. Now, if, you're, uh, if your Bible trivia is kind of going off in your head right now, you're, you're thinking about Joppa, you're thinking about another guy who went to Joppa for something, a guy named Jonah. I think there's some intentionality in the way that the Lord is unfolding this story for us. You remember Jonah called as a prophet, and God tells Jonah to go to the Assyrians to preach repentance to this viciously cruel uh, nation who had ravaged, uh, who at that point would ravage the northern kingdom of Israel. And what does Jonah do when God calls him to go to uh, the Assyrians, to go to Nineveh? Goes down to Joppa instead. And he gets on a boat so they can go as far away from Assyria as possible. Why did Jonah do that? Because Jonah had partiality. Jonah thought those nasty Assyrians in Nineveh, they have no right to even hear the good news of repentance. They have no right, they are not candidates to even hear the possibility that there is salvation for them. And so Jonah runs, and he starts at Joppa. But when you get to Peter, Peter, too, has been prepared for this massive shift in the way he was to think about who belongs to the people of God. Peter goes up for prayer. It's the sixth hour of the day, not the normal time for prayer, but the normal time for eating. It's noon, and Peter's hungry, as one often is at that time of day, and he's sitting on the rooftop, and he falls into this kind of ecstatic trance and he has this vision of this massive picnic blanket coming down out of heaven and unfolding before him and there's all kinds of animals on it there's clean animals there's unclean animals and he hears this voice rise peter kill and eat and notice as peter struggles through this how the lord is preparing him and changing him he says by no means because i've never eaten anything unclean he's he's a good Jew. He's a faithful Jew. He has followed these laws and God had to reveal to him that these laws were preparatory, that they were temporary. And now with the coming of Christ and his death and resurrection, these are no longer the things that distinguish one group of people from another. And so you notice it has to happen three times. And God says to him, what God has made clean no longer call common, no longer call unclean. You see, Peter, Peter was concerned not for the people who might be considered unclean, which was the point of the food. Peter was concerned that he might somehow be blemished by his interaction with them, and he needed the Lord to reveal to him what he needed to do. So he goes, He comes out of this vision, the three men show up, they're looking for him, the Holy Spirit says to him, go without hesitation, which is another way of saying, go with them without making a distinction between yourself and them as Jew and Gentile. He's starting to tear down these distinctions. So he goes with them, they lead him, they stay overnight with him, kind of the beginning of these barriers coming down, he welcomes them in as house guests. And the next day they make their way, they begin to make their way to Caesarea. They arrive in Caesarea. Cornelius sees Peter, falls down before him, explains why he has asked him to come. Of course, Peter says, get up. Uh, and Peter says, why am I here? Cornelius says, we, we need to hear good news from you. And so Peter begins to preach. So there's been this preparation for Peter to understand what it means that God shows no partiality. And now as Peter begins to preach, he sees what it means in real time. Notice the content of Peter's message here. It should sound familiar. Peter talks about Jesus being anointed with the Holy Spirit, doing good, healing those oppressed by the devil. And then he describes Jesus as being hung on a tree. Now, that's interesting. Why does he describe Jesus as being hung on a tree rather than as being crucified on a cross? In Deuteronomy, uh, Moses says that all those who are hung on a tree are considered as cursed, and so you're not to leave them overnight hanging on the tree, you take them down. It's a sign of being cursed. Peter is picking up on that language as a way of saying to them and recognizing the curse of sin that is upon all people, not just Israelites, not just Gentiles, but upon all people as sinners, Jesus has taken that curse upon himself in our place as he was made sin for us. But God raised him from the dead and now proclaims forgiveness of sins for all those who believed as if to say... You want to be forgiven of your sin. You want to know what this good news of peace is. It's not about where you come from. It's not about your ethnicity, your social economic status. It's not about your uh, political party. It's not about any of these things that are just added extras to who we are. The forgiveness of sins is available to all who believe. Which is why Peter says in the beginning, I see now that God shows no partiality, but anyone from any nation who fears him is acceptable to him. Meaning, not that everybody who fears him is saved, but that anybody can come to him simply on the basis of faith. That they don't have to be brought into Israel, the Jewish nation, in order to come to Christ as Savior. The sole requirement for forgiveness is repentance and faith. Two sides, same coin. Notice that Peter leaves out the mention of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the church at Pentecost. And why does he leave that out? Because the Holy Spirit comes, as he did, at Pentecost. Notice what it says in verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. God initiated it. He didn't wait on Peter to give the invitation, he didn't wait on Peter to say, "Now you must repent and believe in order to be saved." The Holy Spirit just comes graciously, just like he did at Pentecost, upon all of these people who were not circumcised. The men were not circumcised. They weren't observing all the dietary laws that that set the Jewish people apart from the rest of the nations. They were not Jewish in any sense. They were fully Gentiles, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them without any prior preparation for them to become Jewish first. There's no holding period to quarantine their uncleanness. Rather, Jesus himself makes them clean without any other distinction. The Holy Spirit falls on them. They're demonstrably saved and brought into the church, confirmed by the gift of tongues. Peter, in some sense, had to be converted in his view of how God would relate to those outside of the Jewish nation. And the Holy Spirit is the one who had to change Peter's view. Not that Peter necessarily was approaching it with prejudice. He didn't quite understand how the Holy Spirit would work among the Gentiles. Would they have to become Jewish first? And the answer we see here is no. And Peter gets it. He looks at them, Uh, there's amazement in verse 45, all who gather there, they get it, the Holy Spirit came upon them, uh, even on the Gentiles, then Peter says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit, notice, just as we have. There's now this equality, and Peter gets it. They didn't have to do three other steps in order to receive the gift of salvation, They didn't have to go through the extra process to become Jewish and then to be able to receive this salvation. The Holy Spirit did it. He made no distinction between us and them, but He brought them in by grace. As we see at the end of the passage, this is a bit challenging for the church in Jerusalem, but they come around. And as Peter explains again his vision, Cornelius' vision, and then what they saw the Holy Spirit do, notice again the emphasis on their equality. In verse 17 of chapter 11, If then God gave the same gift to them, just as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And then at the end, verse 18, the church there falls silent. They glorify God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, as Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. In other words... God took the initiative, and if God shows no favoritism, no partiality on the basis of nation, background, or anything else, then the church gets the message they should not either. This is a massive shift uh, in the early church, one which we often don't appreciate. Uh, that this division between Jew and Gentile, which had been long standing and it turned into things that it wasn't intended to be originally, is now torn down so that Paul in the letter to the Ephesians can say that there were those who knew the covenants, God's promises, and those who were strangers to those covenants. They were outside of God's household, but they've all been brought in through one Lord Jesus Christ. And these two groups have been made one in Jesus. One church, multiple nationalities, multiple ethnicities, all coming through now on the basis of, of faith in Jesus. What are we to make of this, or what ought we to do as we uh, take away application for us from this passage? Uh, Let me just make a few points here. One, we see in Cornelius that the Lord prepares people. Uh, The Lord prepares people ahead of time to receive the good news. Cornelius had been Devout man, praying, seeking the truth. He wasn't really converted from unbelief to belief. He was just brought kind of out of the old into the new. And he got the extra details of the story of who Jesus is and, and the need for faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah. And Cornelius is brought in, but the Lord had prepared him. He had softened his heart and prepared him to receive this news. And the Lord still does that today. The Lord is preparing people all around you who need to hear the good news, who need to know that there's a savior and that there's forgiveness of sins for all who believe in Jesus Christ. So the call for us is to simply be intentional, to look for God's sovereignly working, to look for opportunities as they arise, and to do what Peter did, say the good news and trust the Holy Spirit to do the rest. God still prepares people. Sometimes he prepares them through questions that they have, Sometimes he prepares them through heartache, things that are difficult, and they're looking for answers, and comfort, and relief, and they need to find it in Jesus. Sometimes people simply have part of the story, but not the whole story, and they need someone to tell them the rest of the picture. Secondly, don't make distinctions where God has not made distinctions. Let, let us not be those who show partiality. Uh, there's a story that's often told, I don't, I don't know if it's true or not, but I've, I've heard it, or read it at least, uh, that when um, Mahatma Gandhi was a law student in England, he was from India, but had come to England to study law, that he had begun to read the New Testament. He was a Hindu, obviously coming from India, but he was reading the New Testament, he was learning about Jesus, and he began to wonder if this Christian message this person, Jesus, was maybe the solution to all the problems that India was facing with their caste system. All these different levels of people and the way they uh, made distinctions in India. He was seeing their problems with this. And maybe this message of the New Testament was a way to overcome some of those things. And so he decided he would go to a worship service in a Church of England uh, there. And in, in, uh, as he approached the door, it said that one of the people greeting there turned him away and said you need to go worship with your own people and uh, he left and he, you know, he said well if, if the Christians have a caste system too then I guess I'll just remain a Hindu. His view of Christianity changed not because he encountered Jesus but because he encountered Christians who showed partiality at least as far as the story goes. Whether the story is true or not I think we can all say that we know that experience, and we've probably seen it either in ourselves or in others. God calls us not to make distinctions where he has not made distinctions, not to draw lines where he has not drawn lines, but to know that the good news of Jesus, who is Lord of all and who is risen from the dead and through whom anyone can have forgiveness of sins who believes in him, Jesus calls us to share that good news with anybody. Not being concerned whether we'll get blemished or be considered unclean for interacting with certain people that we may not want to, but to believe that this good news has gone out from us as the church is called to be the light of the world. Whereas under the old covenant, to be part of the people of God, you had to come into Israel, now under the new covenant, Jesus says, go go to all nations and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He is the one who sends us out, and so where he has not drawn lines, we ought not to draw lines either. Finally, I think we need to see that in this story, repentance is the hinge on which everything else turns. The group gathered there in Cornelius' house, kind of Cornelius' small group that he had gathered there. Uh, they hear the good news. The Holy Spirit comes on them, wonderfully converts them, confirms God's promises to them. They're, they're brought into the people of God. But the response of the Jerusalem church is interesting when they evaluate what has happened. Our passage ends with their saying, God has also granted repentance that leads to life, even to the Gentiles. Repentance is the hinge on which everything else turns, whether you belong to the people of God or still outside of the people of God. We all must acknowledge our sin and all the ways that we have failed to love God fully and love our neighbor as ourselves. But the good news is that that sin, it's not, it's not the sin, if I can put it this way, that keeps you out. It's the refusal to repent. Of that sin that keeps you out. Jesus died for sin. It's not a problem for him. He has dealt with our sin fully and finally at the cross. But the question is if we're still outside of the kingdom, still outside of his church, outside of his people, the question is will we repent, turn from our sin, and embrace the grace and forgiveness of God offered to all people through Jesus Christ? without distinction, except will you believe? Would you pray with me?